Yes, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to INC Live and welcome to the UFC 264 preview show. My name is Carl Bimage and I am joined by the man on the right hand side of your screen. A lot of the hardcore fans who've been here since the very beginning will recognize this name. If you're fairly new to the channel though, it's a brand new face for you. It's John Marsh in MMA. John, I know you've been busy with a lot of work commitments. Obviously, you've got your own channel to look after, but you're back with us to talk about what could be one of the biggest events of the year. Yeah, what's up, Carl? What's up, INC Live listeners? Thank you all for having me back. It's good to be back on the show, and I picked a good pay-per-view to come back to because this is a really good pay-per-view from top to bottom. Obviously, you got the biggest star in the sport, Conor McGregor, in the headlining fight, and one of the best guys in the sport, Dustin Poirier, on the other side. So top to bottom, this is a really fun card, and I'm excited to break it down with you guys here in the next hour. And fingers crossed we can get a few more of casual viewers who will be tuning in to the show for the first time. If you are liking what you're seeing, there are a couple of ways to support us. Please like, share, subscribe. Um, if you love us enough, we've also got a Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash it's not cage fighting. And if you like to hear a bit more from John and hear about all of the fight nights and the pay-per-views, John does a full breakdown on every single fight that takes place in the UFC. John, tell us where you can find you. Yeah, the Martian MMA podcast, we break down every single fight, top to bottom, every card, uh, since UFC 218, almost about four years ago. And you can find me on Twitter at UFO underscore UFC or follow me on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes at Martian MMA. And of course, you will be breaking those fights down in just a couple of days' time. For now, though, we're going to be talking about UFC 264. You sort of covered a lot of the bases in your introduction there. It's a Conor McGregor card, takes on Dustin Poirier. We've got a trilogy implications to that. A strong undercard as well. One of the things I always, I'm always fascinated with how the UFC approach a Conor McGregor card because we've got a lot of new fans who are going to be tuning in for the first time. A lot of fans that only ever think about MMA when Conor McGregor's fighting. So I'm always fascinated by how the UFC approach the undercards for these events, who they actually get for like, the core mains or who they put on the main card. There's been a lot of debate and discussion around that. Where do you stand on when it comes to booking Connor cards? Yeah, we always love talking about this and some people might think it's not important, but I think uh, um, you and me definitely think it is important to structure the card well and to put, you know, promising fighters and prom promising fights on the pay-per-view main cards. And the last time Conor fought the co-main event was Holly Holm versus Raquel Pennington, too. And I think they did a much better job with Burns versus Thompson. I think that's a great co-main event. But when I'm looking at the rest of the main card here, Aldana versus Kuniskaya and Tuivasa versus Greg Hardy are on the main card. I don't agree with either of those uh, picks. I think that Nico Price versus Michelle Pereira should be on the main card. I think maybe you should be giving Ryan Hall the spotlight on the main card because he's pretty well known. And Taporia is an up-and-coming prospect as well. So I don't necessarily agree with the structuring of this card, but regardless, there's going to be top-to-bottom good fights. So what are you thinking about the structuring, Carl? Well, I'm surprised that you forgot USC 257, which of course was Michael Chandler versus Dan Hooker. Oh, wait. Yeah, so what did I... Oh, uh, that was the one UFC before then. That was, yeah, that was 246 when he fought Cowboy. True. Well, yeah, I mistake. I was mistaken there. But the last event was great, co-main event-wise. Uh, but go back to the Connor versus Cowboy fight. That's when we had Holly Holm versus uh, Rekko Pennington. I think they learned their lesson a little bit there. For me, when it comes to a Connor card, I always think of it as the UFC know that it's going to be new fans attending this for the first time. So I'd like to think that 
They book their main card wanting to try and showcase a little bit of everything. So you've got your all-action brawls, you've got your big heavyweights trying to knock each other out, you've got a decent level women's fight, and I think 229 got the mix absolutely perfect. And when I look at this card, even though there's some questionable inclusions, it leans more towards the positive than it does the negative. Yeah, I don't think it, it's terrible from top to bottom. Um, the main card structuring is the most confusing part, but I think there are like a solid four or five really good prelim fights that I'm really looking forward to. Um, Duplessis versus uh, Giles is good. Griffin versus Condit is fun. Brad Tavares is a cool fighter. Um, and the two fights I just mentioned with uh, Hall and Price, too. So I think that's five very good prelim fights. And the prelims are equally good as the main card, in my opinion. And we'll discuss those prelims in a little bit more detail. For now, though, we're going to be talking about not just UFC 264, but the event that's going to be taking place after that, UFC 265. Because we heard the story on Monday, and it caught a lot of people by surprise. All expectations were that the main event for UFC 265 would see Francis Ngannou face Derek Lewis for the heavyweight title. Derek Lewis is fighting for a heavyweight belt, but it's an interim against Seville Garn. And it's safe to say, John, that a lot of people were not happy when this was announced. Well, I think the people who, you know, are, were upset about that need to look at dollars and cents and the history of Amanda Nunes headlining cards before, you know, making too many criticisms. Uh, I think it is a bit disrespectful to Francis Ngannou to make an interim belt so soon after he won his belt. And it does seem like he got kind of strong armed by the UFC and Dana White and um, Hunter Campbell, all the executives at the UFC who just bully the fighters and their management into, into taking the fights that they want. Um, but in terms of the fight itself, Lewis versus Gan, I'm really excited. Gan is already like a minus 300 favorite, so it seems like the public is pretty uh, confident in Cyril Gan. But I don't think it's going to be that easy of a walk in the park. Um, you know, Derek Lewis is a tough guy, extremely tough, and he's got great power. But I do see, you know, Gan kind of doing his thing there. It, it'd still be. It'll still be a good fight. There's a great pay-per-view. Luke versus Kiesa, Aldo versus Munoz. That's a great card. And we might be back breaking down that card next month. I certainly hope so. One of the things that sort of stands out for me, it's something that I've always sort of thought about to an extent, but I think what happened with Lewis versus Garn has made that very evident. Every company, whether that's the UFC, Bellator, One Championship, etc., they always have an eye out for who they want to fight in certain events. It just makes sense from a money perspective. So if they've got an event in Madison Square Garden, you're going to want Conor, John Jones, that sort of fighter to headline. What I've noticed since Endeavor took over is they are a lot more bullish about making sure they get the fights they want. So we've seen more interim belts created. We've seen champions getting stripped more frequently. And... This is another example of it. Um, all indications are, you mentioned a couple of the reasons there. It's a, it's possibly a power play against Francis, who may be asking for too much money, wants the John Jones fight. Obviously, they know that Nunes isn't a good draw, so they don't want that headlining. But the biggest factor is it's taking place in Houston. And Derek Lewis is a god in that region. So I could possibly see them saying, hey, if you want this event in Houston... We want Derek Lewis fighting for a title. And if Francis isn't going to play ball, he wants to push back a month, then just for the sake of keeping up a contract, we're going to need to put an interim in place. 
Yeah, I think the biggest factor is they didn't want Nunes headlining, in my opinion. I do think there is a slight added element of Lewis being a Houston guy, but it's not like Derek Lewis is going to sell any pay-per-views. I mean, he might sell a few extra hundred tickets or something like that, but it's not going to be like a life-changing draw for the event. So I do think it takes the the event uh, up another notch or two, but I think pay-per-view-wise, it's still not going to do very good. I mean, like 250000 at most buys is my is my guess for this one. I'm looking at about 160, 170, but regardless of what figure that is, the alternative would have been, what, 80,000, 90,000 for Nunez versus Penny because there's just no buzz around that fight at all, which is no disrespect to either girl. Where do you stand when it comes to interim belts? Because I think that's another thing that's really irked people and more, not so much the interim belt, but the double standards around when the UFC implement them. And that's something which I've sort of been a bit annoyed by because, like, look at, say, 2017, 2018, etc. We allowed Conor McGregor to stay lightweight champion when he was off boxing Floyd Mayweather. Nunes can get away with not defending the bantamweight belt for two years. But Francis Ngannou wins the heavyweight title and three months later, the UFC decide an interim belt's needed. Even though Francis says, hey, push the fight back a month, I'd be ready for that. It, that's the sort of thing that sort of it annoys me and I think it annoys a lot of fans. It's the double standards. Yeah, and you saw Errol Helwani tweet about this saying that that was kind of the the prerogative of Hunter Campbell since he took over. And you said something earlier is that WME wants to make the fights that they want to. And that's not a bad thing, you know, inherently, but WME doesn't know what they're doing. They don't know MMA. They they know num- numbers and dollars and cents, and they're trying to make all these these financial decisions. But th- they're really kind of ruining the sanctity of the sport of MMA. And I do think it is disrespectful for Francis. I mean, he did win the belt like four months ago, and they're already giving him an interim belt. But I just think it's as simple as they wanted. They didn't want Amanda Nunes headlining. They needed a way to get the these heavyweights above them. And if creating some fake interim titles the way to do it, then that's the way they're doing it. But um, you saw Brett Okamoto, the uh, UFC poster boy, tweet out that this doesn't change. That that's, uh, Nganu is not the undisputed champion. And then everyone was like... No, no, it does. It makes it disputed. I mean, if there's an interim champion, you're not the undisputed anymore. So uh, it is a bit of a slap in the face to Nganu. But, you know, I think he's probably going to beat whoever wins the fight regardless. So, Do you consider an interim champion a real champion? Do you put like Carlos Condit and Shane Carwin at the same sort of level as, say, like John Jones or Nganu or people like that? Nope. A great example of that is Tony Ferguson won an interim belt and, you know, he he was never undisputed UFC championship material. And, you know, I'm sure there's there's lots of examples like that um, interim belts. The only the only time it's legitimate is if you get, you know, promoted to to undisputed champion like um, Whitaker. Robert Whitaker did. And I think even Jose Aldo did back in. Uh, 2015, I think, right? Uh, he, beat Frank, he beat Frankie Edgar, and then they made him the official champion after Connor fought um, Alvarez, and then he lost the undisputed belt to Holloway. Um, and speaking of Carlos Condit, former UFC interim champion, he is going to be headlining the prelims. Do you see what I did there? Yeah, good transition. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah well, you do these a couple of times, eventually some of the pieces start uh, coming together. But we have got those prelim fights on the screen right now. Uh, there's two fights in particular that's really taking our interest. So we'll start with you, John. 
Uh, what's the prelim fight that you're most looking forward to? I think it's Nico Price versus Michelle Pereira. I mean, these guys are just nonstop action fighters. They're both strikers. They both have tons of knockouts on their record. And I don't think I've ever seen a boring Nico Price fight. Um, he did kind of go toe-to-toe with Cowboy Cerrone in his last fight, and that fight ended up being a draw. Not exactly a great look with how you know the quality of, of Cowboy has looked lately, but Michel Pereira has kind of abandoned all the flippy techniques and the backflips in his past few fights. He's gotten a lot more serious, and he's won both of those fights by you know pretty clear decisions outstriking his opponent. So I think this is going to be a, a great striker-versus-striker matchup, and I just see very few ways that it can be boring. So... Um, it's not in a terrible spot in the card. It's at the 9 p.m. slot, but I think this would be a great pay-per-view opener, honestly. And I think they're two guys as well that would really benefit from the Connor rub because hardcore fans, especially with Nico Price, absolutely adore Nico Price. Pereira has a bit more of a more of a meme following, bearing in mind what happened against Tristan Connolly and, of course, all the, the spinning and jumping stuff. But they would get a massive boost from being on the undercard of a Connor Shaw. In terms of how the fight goes, I agree with you. It has the potential to be a real all-action fight, but I am wary of how slow Nico Price starts fights. And if Michelle Pereira comes out in the way that he normally does, it could be over quite quickly. Yeah, and I mentioned that Michelle kind of has abandoned the flippy techniques and, and whatnot, but like, imagine if he comes out doing the backflips and the, the moonsaults off the cage, and that was on pay-per-view. I mean, he, he would gain hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers like overnight if he did that stuff on pay-per-view. So I think it's kind of a missed opportunity. But I'm sure that uh, Yana Kunitskaya versus Irina Aldana is going to be just as exciting. So don't worry, pay-per-view buyers. We'll be getting to that one in a lot more detail, which I'm sure John is really looking forward to. Uh, in terms of the other prelim fights that I'm looking forward to, Ryan Hall versus Ilya Topuria. So a lot of people might not know about El Matador, uh, one of the few Spanish fighters on the roster. 10-0, uh, he absolutely made easy work of Damon Jackson in his most recent UFC fight. And he's going up against a guy against Ryan Hall, who, very similar to Nico Price, a big cult following and a very unique fighting style. There's not many people in MMA right now who do the things that Ryan Hall does. Yeah, very unique guy. Um, you know, his, he's kind of been hard to get momentum behind him. When was the last time he fought? Two years ago. Uh, Darren Elkins, yeah, just about two years to the day. And that was a pretty fun fight from him. I mean, he was landing the spinning back kicks. His It was a lot more striking-oriented than his um, than his typical jiu-jitsu, heel hook, uh, Imanari roll type of style. But I think the guy has really struggled with activity, and it's been hard for him to gain momentum. And sadly for them, for him, they're throwing him in there with another, you know, A plus prospect in Ilya Tapuria. Uh, the guy can strike really well. The guy can grapple really well. Um, Out grappled um, Yusef Salah in his first UFC fight. And I think it's going to be a very tough test for for Hall. I'm not extremely confident in Tapuria because Hall has such a unique fighting style. You never really know how he's going to deal with the leg locks, but the odds have Tapuria as a minus 200 favorite, and I think that's about right. I mean, the guy has way more ways to win the fight, in my opinion, while I think if Ryan Hall doesn't get the fight to the floor in the jiu-jitsu realm, he really is going to struggle here. So you have uh, much of a prediction or read on this fight, Carl? I think it's going to be a very tough one to ask, and it's sort of something we sort of touched on when we discussed uh, Damian Maya versus Bilal Muhammad, which is that you've got one guy who is much more well-rounded, who has the tools to just piece him up or take the fight wherever he wants to. 
But the specialist is so good in their own discipline. There's that element of wildcard about it. Speaking about Ryan Hall, and obviously we're mentioning Damian Meyer from last month's card. Does MMA still have a place for proper specialists these days? I would say it does, but I don't think that Ryan Hall is one of those those specialists. I mean, I think if you're a wrestler, you really can do that against the majority of opponents with success because stop and take down defense is really, really difficult. But Ryan Hall, who doesn't really have those reliable wrestling, I mean, he's kind of diving at the legs, like I said, doing those Imanari rolls and a lot of fancy jujitsu moves. That's not really replicable against the highest level um, of the sport. So I think Ilya Taporia has much more potential to like break into the top 10, top 15 in the next year, while Hall will always kind of be this like niche you know, kind of unique fighter um, who comes around every so often but doesn't really make any meaningful career strides. Do you know what I could see Ryan Hall being? He's going to be featherweight Paul Craig. He's going to be a challenge, but he's still very beatable. He has a lot of catching up to do because Paul Craig is way ahead of him at this point. He's about to submit Alexander Gustafson without breaking a sweat and cement himself as one of the best light heavyweights of all time. So, <laughs> My boy. he's got. To, I'm telling you, Ryan Hall's got some catching up to do. Anything else on the prelims that takes your fancy? Um, I mentioned a few other fights, but we don't have to talk about them too much. I, I am picking Max Griffin to beat Carlos Condit pretty handedly as well. I think Griffin will, will make pretty easy work of him there. But um, like I mentioned, five or six really good fights on the prelims, and Jennifer Maya versus Jessica I is not one of them. I'm sure there's lots of evil fans who uh, sort of got the pitchforks out right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell them to come at me, all, all the Jessica I fans. All her uh, OF subscribers. Um. <laughs> and speaking of a guy who has a lot of fans and a lot of ravenous fans as well, we go to the first fight on the main card. It's Sean O'Malley taking on a, a newcomer to the UFC, which is Chris Moutinho. Now, this was another fight which caused a lot of contra controversy because uh, to give people a little bit of perspective of what happened... Originally, Sean O'Malley was supposed to take on Louis Smolka, former UFC flyweight, now applying his trade as a bantamweight. And, of course, uh, Smolka had to pull out through injury. I believe it was staff. Uh, so a lot of people came forward to say, hey, I want this fight with Sean O'Malley. And it makes a lot of sense as well. O'Malley has a lot of momentum behind him. So if somebody was to beat him, they would get all of that rope, derail the hype train, and maybe get some of the bounce in the same way that Cheeto Viva did. Here are some of the names that put themselves forward to fight Sean O'Malley. Ricky Simone, Marab Dvalishvili, Cody Stearman, Tim Elliott, Brian Kelleher, Andre Ewell, Giga Chikadze, and a couple of guys who are out the UFC, including Brandon Davis, uh, Zirab Lavishvili, and David Onama. So you've got a lot of unbeaten former UFC fighters all putting themselves forward. Instead, the UFC chooses a guy who is 9-4. Yes, he's won his last two. Only two knockout wins of those nine. Is this the UFC just basically throwing Sean O'Malley a sacrificial lamb? It is, yes. And I'm really curious as to who made the decision uh, on picking the opponent. Um, the top five opponents that, that volunteered are all, you know, grappling heavy guys because they obviously see the, the hole in O'Malley's grappling. And, you know, 
I can't really blame Sean O'Malley for declining. If you if you have the option to decline the harder fight, then why wouldn't you? You know, um, and if they give you the option to sign some regional guy from CES, CFFC, um, you might as well just take the free paycheck on the big card. Um, but I, I don't want to be too rude to Chris Motino because you know he is coming here on on short notice. But he he's just not ready for this. He's not ready to be in the UFC against the lower level guys, let alone one of the better strikers at 135. So I think there's going to be a huge speed and striking advantage, a huge power advantage for Sean O'Malley. And it's probably going to look pretty similar to the Eddie Wineland fight. And I think O'Malley's going to dust him, honestly, in the first few minutes, not even the first round. I think it's going to be really short. And uh, I hope Chris Moutinho doesn't get injured. That's all I got to say. I mean, from Chris Moutinho's perspective, you're not going to turn down this opportunity. I mean, you're going to be fighting on the opening fight of a Conor McGregor card. You were fighting, who was his last opponent? Just looking at his uh, uh, Sherdog profile here. It was CFFC, but but I actually, I'm gonna disagree with that because he's going to be getting paid $15,500 to be knocked out in front of millions of people. Personally, I think that's a little bit low of a price tag uh, for that. And you know, with, with the way the UFC operates, he maybe will get one more fight. You know, he's going to lose here. They're going to give him some lower level opponent. And if he loses that, he's out of here and he'll get another $15,500 and he will, you know, take two losses, get embarrassed in front of millions of people for, for a small amount of money. So I don't think it's really worth it for him. Um, but I, I understand why Sean O'Malley accepted the easier fight, honestly. I mean, the, the original opponent was Luis Smoko. I think that was kind of underwhelming to start. I mean, uh, O'Malley just beat Almeida, who I think is, you know, on the same level as Smolka. I mean, give the guy a step up in competition. They're so worried about O'Malley losing now that they're just going to be giving him the easiest fights. And I think there has been a notable backlash against Sean O'Malley for whether he chose to uh, take this matchup, whether it was something forced on him by the UFC. But I think there were a lot of people wanting Sean to take that jump up. So for the UFC or Sean to decide not to do that, I think it's frustrated a lot of people. Dare I say, is Sean O'Malley becoming the UFC's MVP? Yeah, I mean, we, we are going in that direction. And, I mean, if they gave him another UFC-level striker, a mid-level guy, if they gave him a replacement on on Smolka's tier, uh, this would be acceptable. But, but, I mean, they went, like, two or three notches below Luis Smoka to find a replacement here. I mean, it is a bit uh, of a waste of time, but, you know, I guess it's the way they wanted it. Um, they want a squash match on the opening fight of the card. So be it. They're going to get it. So for anybody out there who might not know who Chris Moutinho is, probably think he plays for the Portuguese national team. Give us a little bit of background. So I only watched his uh, three most recent fights, and I just saw the guy get hit a lot, very hittable, does not have the best defense. And, I mean, he's he's been knocked out on the regionals. He got dropped two or three times in that fight. And in one of his most recent fights, let me find the opponent's name, um, he was hurt badly several times in that fight against uh, Ajim, Ash- Ashlek Ajim. He got hurt several times in that fight, didn't end up getting the comeback victory via knockout, but he just doesn't have much power in his hands. Uh, he doesn't have good defense. He gets rocked several times in his most recent fights. So I just think he's going to be running into some some stiff punches pretty early from O'Malley, and I think he's going to get slept in the first round. Pretty ominous stuff there. So unfortunately, if you are one of Chris <laughs> Moutinho's friends or family, I don't think this is going to end very well 
Um, I'm in a very similar boat to you. I think that Sean O'Malley is going to make very easy work of him. Um, whether I'll go for first round knockout, I think I can see him hurting Chris in the first round, or Chris doing enough to survive and Sean getting it done in the second. Nice, nice. We got to disagree a little bit here. So, I'm, of course, I'm we one do. Yeah. That was the problem. Luke was too agreeable. We just seem to agree on the same thing all the time. Okay, I'm going to start intentionally disagreeing with you just, just to make the show more interesting, too. And we can start with those disagreements with fight number two on the card. Now, we're staying in the Bantamweight division. This time, it's the women. And it's a a match between top five ranked Bantamweights. So, your mileage may vary depending on how you feel, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's Irene Aldana taking on Yana Kuniskaya. Getting up the betting odds for this one here. It's very close between the two. Aldana, minus 120 favorite. Uh, Yana Kuniskaya is plus 100. And we sort of touched on it at times. If you follow us on social media, we talk about it at times on the show. Let's not mince words. Women's bantamweight is in a very bad place right now. Yeah, it is. But th- this is a you know a decent fight. I just do not think it deserves to be on, on the pay-per-view main card. But th- these women are, are, you know, like you said, they're pretty skilled. They're towards the top of uh, the women's roster. Um, but it's a pretty simple matchup to, to break down, in my opinion. Aldana wants to strike. Kuniskaya wants to clinch and grapple. It's going to be a battle of footwork and who can get the fight where they want it. If Aldana can keep that that range, that distance striking, she's probably going to win. If Kuniskaya can get it into the clinch and the grappling realm, then I think she's going to win. So you have a prediction here. You're leaning one way. Um, pick-wise, I, Carl? I can understand why the UFC have put this on the main card. I know you're a little bit more on edge about it but as i mentioned before the ufc like to showcase a little bit of everything when it comes to the connor cards and this is basically the sort of rodriguez versus hebas this is your showcase woman's fight uh whether i think it's going to be as impactful or as entertaining as that fight i'm not entirely sure um and i think another factor as well that takes my interest Irene Aldana's last fight was up against holly holm it uh, main evented one of the fight nights over on fight island and it didn't go well for Aldana. The UFC have booked her against another Jackson Wink fighter. So this is basically, have you learned from your mistakes that you made uh, back in October? And can you get it done against someone who's basically Holly Holm light? Yeah, I had that same feeling as well. And initially I was kind of leaning towards Aldana. You know, she's definitely the better boxer, the better striker of the two. And Kuniskaya doesn't really defend punches very well. kind of gets cut up and bleeds a lot. So I was kind of thinking that she was going to win Aldana. But the more I think about it, Arena Aldana just can't really avoid the clinch. You know, if you come at her, push her back to the cage, she's going to walk in a straight line back to the cage. She's going to get stuck up against the cage. Raquel Pennington did it to her. Holly Holm did it to her. And I think that that's what we're going to see Kuniskaya do here is, you know, eat some punches on the way in, but eventually get the fight to the clinch where Kuniskaya is just going to tie her up, drag her down to the floor a few times and, you know, make the fight kind of boring. So for the fans' sake, for the UFC's sake, they're going to be cheering for Aldana to outbox her. But I think there's a great chance this turns into like a 15-minute uh, stall against the wall type of fight with a lot of clinching. And I think I'm going to be picking Kuniskaya to, to get the decision victory. I'm in a very similar boat as, as to you. I think that, and you basically pointed out how Kuniskaya is going to win this one because she is the epitome of wall and stall recently. I mean, she fights the quintessential Jackson Wink style, in my opinion. Now. Jackson Wink, very effective training camp. I have no issue in regards to the fighters or the way methods that they have to win fights. 
but it's not entertaining. It's teep kicks, teep kicks, frustrate the opponents, and if they get too close, clinch. And Kunisteyer does that to an absolute T. Um, we saw that to an extent, especially when she fought um, Stolya Lorenko, which is just 15 minutes of just wall and stall. So she's a very strong girl. Um, if there's things I do like about Kunitskaya, um, I think she has a good left hand. Her sidekicks are probably some of her best weapons. And one of the things I do like, especially when you compare it to Holly, is if Yana does get the fight to the ground, she's more willing to try and jump and go for a sub than someone like Holly Holm is. So those are some of the more positive traits. In terms of Aldana, I can understand why the UFC want to push Irene Aldana so much because her boxing is absolutely beautiful. Like her lateral movement, the way she uses the jab. But you sort of mentioned it before, there's a lot of flaws which the right fighter can utilize. Like you mentioned the Raquel Pennington fight. Like Raquel pretty much for me set a template of how to beat Aldana. Because if you do get on the inside and don't let Aldana work in boxing range, she freezes. And she's been put into some very close competitive fights against fighters who she should either be beating or running close. I mean, Betch Kohara, and we always like to meme on Betch, but she gave Irene Aldana a really competitive fight at UFC 237. And really, Aldana should be making easy work of that fight. Yeah, that was probably like 1-1 one, one going into round three, and Aldana kind of got that um, miracle armbar in round three. But yeah, that fight was closer than it had to be, and Aldana's just kind of like that. She always makes the fights closer than they have to be. Um, and yeah, it's funny you mentioned that about Jackson Wink. I mean, five, six, seven years ago, they were extremely prominent in the sport, you know, John Jones, and they had several other fighters, but now they're they're next to irrelevant. You barely hear that name even mentioned anymore. Um but uh, you, you going with Kuniskaya as your official pick here, Carl? Kuniskaya, unanimous decision. And it would yep. it hurts me to say that because I do love Irene Aldana, but I think she's going to run into the same problems she did against Holly. It's going to be like wall and stall, can't get up against the fence. If she goes, does get taken down, I don't see her being able to get back up. I think Kuniskaya takes that one. And if Kuniskaya does take that one, what a lot of people are not realizing now is that's going to be three wins in a row for Yana Kuniskaya. Don't say it. Don't, don't, say, don't say her name, the woman next. I, she's not fighting you-know-who for the championship. Who, Juliana I'm Pena? Ruining... <laughs> yeah, the next, the next champ, obviously. Um, but imagine that. Imagine Yana. In a, wasn't she already in a – yeah, she, her first fight was against Cyborg. Um, yeah, that'd be funny. Another Yana, Yana Kuniskaya world championship fight. Imagine. <laughs> It's Jackson Wink. They've got all the tricks. They know how to get these instantaneous, undeserved title shots. Yeah, it's true. But uh, and she kind of does fit the mold, you know. Pretty blonde girl too. Um, the Holly Holm formula—you never know. Fight number three, and we're going up to the heavyweight division now. If there was a lot of people who were maybe upset about Yana Kunitskaya versus Irene Aldana being on the main card, if there was one fight which sort of rivaled it in terms of undeservedness. It's arguably this one. Tai Tuavata versus Greg Hardy. Again, I understand from the UFC's perspective, two big heavyweight brawlers could possibly end in a first-round knockout. But I think it's fairly safe to say when it comes to heavyweight fighters, these are sort of on the, dare I say, the lower rung of the of the division, as it were. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, middle to lower 
Um, this does deserve to be on pay-per-view. But if you look at the treatment that Tatsuyavasa has gotten, I think he's been on like tons of pay-per-view cards. I think he was on the main card for 221, 225, 238, 243, and 254. I mean, that's insane. He also headlined versus uh, Junior Santos once. Yeah, and then same they're giving the same treatment to direct greg hardy you know he's been on he's headlined um versus volkov right i think that was a headliner uh cool and man then, cool man it was, oh, uh, it was? Keta, okay. Keta versus the beat i believe was the uh main that's event right. of that one right. um but he's gotten some favorable treatment as well you know main cards um fight night main cards fight night co-main events and i mean i don't think either of these guys are any good at fighting um so it's a bit confusing why it's on the main card but you know Big heavy guys swing hard, so I guess the UFC is still kind of you know playing out that twenty year old narrative, even though uh, these guys don't typically produce good fights. Um, what do you think in uh, how this fight's going to play out, Carl? I think it's going to play out the way the UFC wanted to play out. I I can see a first round knockout for this one, and I think there's that's maybe what sort of the fascination for me is that I'm not. 100% sure. I think I'm leaning one way, which I'll get into in a little bit more detail later on. But there is a big possibility of one of these guys landing that big knockout punch in the first round. I certainly hope it does because I think the conditioning of both of these guys in rounds two or three is very questionable. You sort of touched on something there, which I was going to want to ask you about. Where do you stand on these sort of unranked heavyweight fights? Because the UFC brass absolutely love them. Like you'll see the amount of times you'll get like a like a Jorgen de Castro or a Jay Collier or someone like that randomly appearing on a fight night main card. Where do you as a fan is that something that you like to see? Is it something you dislike? Why, why do you think the UFC is so supportive of that kind of fight? The unranked heavyweight fat guy brawl. Yeah, I I have no idea, honestly, why they they like it so much. I mean, I think certain guys, one of them, you just mentioned Jay Collier. Like, he's a fun fighter to watch. Um, Carlos Philippe is fun. There are some fun lower-level heavyweights. And, I mean, these guys aren't aren't immensely boring. I mean, I shouldn't be too hard on them. But I actually disagree with one thing you said. I'm I'm pretty sure this fight isn't going to end by round one knockout because um, Chivasa is really tough. um, He's going to... I think Tuivasa is going to be the one who wants to get aggressive and wants to get this fight close in boxing range. Greg Hardy will be kind of content to leg kick, to jab, to kind of keep distance and stay really far away. Um, while Tuivasa is going to need to find a way to close that distance. So he's either going to try to clinch like he did a lot against Stefan Struve and land some punches against the cage or just brawl in the pocket throwing punches. And I think the the cage push is going to be Tuivasa's game plan. He's going to try to push Hardy against the cage. And he might have success there because Hardy doesn't do too well when he's being pushed against the cage. But striking-wise, I think it favors the athleticism of Greg Hardy. And I think Greg Hardy is probably the more improving fighter of the two. Um, you know, in round one versus Marcin Tabura, his striking looked pretty good, honestly, before he kind of eventually gassed out and slowed down. But now that these guys don't have to worry about grappling from either side, I think the chance of a, gra- a gas out or losing via grappling is really low. So I think we're either going to see like a second or third round knockout or a decision victory here. I'm actually kind of leaning towards a Greg Hardy decision uh, as my official pick. I, I agree with you in regards to um, the Martin Tabura fight. Like, I've never been very high on Greg Hardy. Obviously, he's got all of his controversies and his scandals. But even beyond that, 
I just saw him as a very, a very, how should I put this, a very raw fighter. Like, especially when you saw him very early in his career, he was just sort of like big, wild punches. And obviously that's what you come to expect from a guy who's had two or three fights. The Tabura fight, I definitely saw marked improvements in his striking. And Martin Tabura, great heavyweight gatekeeper, can give a lot of the guys in the top 10 a lot of trouble. And he, Greg Hardy was causing him problems. The second round started, his conditioning started to go to pot. And once that fight hit the ground, he had no idea what was happening. Yeah, and, you know, you, I agree with a lot of what you just said. I definitely don't like Greg Hardy. But I do think the guy is actually making solid improvements as a fighter, you know, training at ATT. You can see the fight-to-fight improvements. He, he, His first five fights, he was swinging for the knockout the entire time pretty much. But he's gotten more measured. He's learned how to throw a jab, to throw a leg kick, to stay behind that, to stay a little more disciplined. So I think he is the more improving fighter than Ty Tuivasa. I mean, it was only two fights ago that we saw Tuivasa get just completely wiped out on the mat versus Sergey Spivak in his home country. And then he beat Stefan Struve in uneventful fashion. And then he knocked out uh, a regional guy, Harry Hunsucker, in a minute. So we have seen two wins from Tuivasa, but I don't think we've seen any real like improvements from the guy. So I think Hardy's the guy who's making more improvements. I think that Hardy's going to be able to find his range a little bit better in this fight. And I think he's going to win. Would it maybe we... Bearing in mind what happened to Greg up against um, Marcin Tabura, could we possibly see Ty try and take it to the ground? We could, but I don't think it's going to be successful. Um, I don't think Tuivasa has the wrestling chops. I mean, there's actually a video of Tuivasa going to uh, Daniel Cormier's gym and wrestling with like some high schoolers and like some 15 or 16 year old kid was just riding Tai Tuivasa on the ground in, in that video. Um, it's one of uh, the I Am The Bay videos on YouTube if you guys want to go look it up. So, no, I don't think he's going to have the wrestling credentials to take him down. I mean, Hardy's not exactly an easy guy to take down. I mean, Tabura is one of the better grapplers at heavyweight, and he even had a tough time. It took him six or seven minutes to finally get him down. So I don't think we have to worry about grappling at all from either guy here. And he is a bit of a bad omen if you tie to Tuivasa. Uh, reading through the stats, if you look at all of Greg Hardy's UFC opponents, all of them have been cut by the UFC after Greg Hardy beat them. Yep, that's not that is not a good sign. Uh, I think Jorgen lost one more fight before he lost, but yeah, I know what you mean. They've all been cut at this point, so that's that's not very good. Yeah, very very worrisome sign for his opponents. And it's a bad omen as well because I'm I'm leaning towards you. I think I'm going to have Greg Hardy win this one. You're going by decision. I'm going to say a second round knockout. Nice. I like it. Yeah, like I said, I, I think it'll be not early, but maybe towards the middle of the fight. And if they don't get it by like the seven or eight minute mark, I feel like they, don't, they won't really have the gas to knock each other out. So um, I, I like the pick there. We we're, are talking, we're, here. we're framing this around the possibility of Greg Hardy winning this fight. We both predicted that he will. What if Greg Hardy loses this fight? There's a lot of questions after what happened against uh, Tabura over the Greg Hardy experiment. Would a loss to tie to a vast and make the UFC think, is it worth us pushing this guy as hard? Um, I think that would be his worst loss. I mean, obviously the first one against um, Alan Crowder was the guy's name, you know, with the disqualification. Uh, that was kind of a stutter step, but I think he 
he's made enough improvements that he has um, a little bit of a little bit of recognition behind him. The, the Tabura loss uh, wasn't a great look, but Tabura is a legitimate top ten heavyweight, so I don't give him too much uh, criticism for that one. But yes, yeah, so, so or uh, excuse me, Tuvasa would be his, his probably his worst loss in the past few years. They're not going to cut him after this fight, but. Uh, they're going to be digging at the bar- bottom of the barrel. Maybe they'll give him a uh, Harry Hounsucker, the guy Tuivasa just knocked out if uh, Hardy loses. Poor main event time. And we've been quite critical of some of the elements of matchmaking when it comes to this card. Obviously, with like Sean O'Malley against Chris Moutinho. I don't think there's anything you can criticize, though, about this welterweight matchup. Gilbert Burns versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, a classic striker versus grappler matchup on paper. Gilbert Burns, who's just fought for the belt, actually gave Kamara Usman a bit of a run for his money in the first round. And Wonderboy, who he sort of become a bit of a sleeper in this welterweight division because the real narrative around that weight class is, is it going to be Leon Edwards who fights for the title? Are they going to run the Colby fight back again? And here's Wonderboy just sitting back in Northern Carolina and just saying, well, hang on a minute. I'm still here as well. Don't rule me out. And if he wins this one, it's three wins in a row. And he has as strong of a claim as the other two guys. Yeah, I mean, Stephen Thompson is kind of the dark horse, honestly. Um, I mean, he just beat Vincente Luque and Jeff Neal. I mean, that's better than anything Colby Covington has done in his entire career. Um, so, I mean, the guy is still sharp. He's still a great striker. And I do think it is going to be striker versus grappler here because... Burns is striking is a little too basic. It's a little too linear. It's just, you know, jab, right hand, leg kick, calf kick. It, it's nothing too, you know, out of the box. And I think that Stephen Thompson is just going to have a big speed advantage, a big striking advantage when it's on the feet. And anytime Burns is going to try to come close to him, he's going to run into some counters, some straight punches, uh, some of the great kicks of Wonder Boy. And I think that Gilbert Burns is going to have a, a very hard time getting close. So what do you think about Gilbert Burns' chances of getting his grappling going, Carl. Do you think he's going to be getting takedowns here? I think it's hard to say. Like, I think the best way to to deal with a guy like Wonderboy and the striking style that he has, you've got to have to shoot for double legs. And that's never really been Gilbert's style. I think he suffers from the the issues that a lot of jujitsu practitioners have, which is they're fantastic when they actually get to the mat, but getting to the mat is the big problem. I think if you try and play the Damian Maya style and just try and single leg him or press him up against the fence, I don't... Wonderboy could deal with those any day of the week. So I think that's out the... That's out the, the works when it comes to Gilbert Burns. What I think Gilbert does do, though, you sort of criticise his striking style as being basic, but I actually think that plays to his advantage because he likes to spam these big power punches. And when you get people worrying about them... He can then switch in and then use the threat of those strikes to set up the takedown attempts. That was something he did very well against Tyron Woodley. Whether he can do that against Wonderboy, who's stylistically very different, I'm not entirely sure. But there is a path to the ground for Gilbert Burns. Yeah, and you did mention grappling and wrestling. I actually think that Burns' wrestling is pretty good for a jiu-jitsu guy. He's done a good job at, you know, working on his wrestling enough to where he can get the fight to the floor, uh, taking down guys like uh, Oben Mercier, Alexei Konchenko. I consider both of those pretty impressive. Um, but 
I just think he's going to have a hard time getting close to Thompson mm-hmm. because Thompson has the big cage. He's going to have more room to uh, to move around. And, and I think he's going to have to probably get Wonder Boy against the fence to take him down. I don't really trust his open space takedowns against Wonder Boy. And it's just going to be so hard for Burns to get the fight to the fence when when Wonder Boy's footwork, his, his movement is so good. He's so good at moving backwards and countering you. Um, I think also what is coming into play here is Burns's durability. And I, I don't think he's looking the most durable in his recent fights. I mean, especially the Usman fight. Usman is, you know, a great puncher. But, you know, getting rocked with some of the punches that he did in that fight, I, I think that he could be running into some straight right hands, some straight left hands from Wonderboy Thompson. We might see some knockdowns from Wonderboy here. Uh, he's got really underrated power, you know, knocked down Jorge Masvidal uh, a few fights back. And I think that we're going to see uh, Wonderboy probably sit Burns down at some point in this fight. He's not going to finish him, in my opinion, but I think it's going to be a knockdown decision type of fight, like the Vincente Luque fight not that long ago. A good thing you mentioned Luque as well, because Luque has always been praised for the quality of his chin. And Wonderboy knocked him down, what, two or three times in that fight? Yeah, he did. Um, I think I think it was two, and you know the way he, he, it's just his timing that makes it so good. He isn't the biggest hitter, but he's so precise. His timing is so good, and I mean the guy is 37, 38 years old, still looking really good. I mean we, he has to slow down at some point. I just don't think this is the matchup that's going to make him do it. And um, so my official prediction is going to be a, a Wonder Boy 30-27 here. Um, what about you, Carl? I'm in the same boat. I'm going to go Wonder Boy 30-27. If there's a couple of Disclaimers I do have, one of those sort of airs of doubt was something you mentioned. Stephen Wonderboy Thompson is 38 years old now. And as good as he has been, I thought he looked absolutely amazing against Jeff Neal, who a lot of people actually thought Jeff Neal had a really good chance going into that fight of upsetting Wonderboy. Wonderboy made it look easy. But the odds were even. The odds were even going into that fight. They've actually got Wonderboy's minus 270 favour for this one. I should just point that out. But uh, th- not this 170 favorite. 170 favorite. The uh, typing errors. Sorry about that one. But no, minus 170 favorite for Stephen Wonderboy. You mentioned a good point there. Wonderboy is 38 years old. And even though he has looked fantastic, when you reach 38 years old, there are going to be inevitable questions over whether you're going to slow down. Like we've seen with a um, bit of a crude example here, but with Machida. Very similar sort of karate style and just nowhere near as effective in Bellator as he was when he was in his, in his prime fighting in the UFC. And also as well with Wonderboy, we've seen him get rocked a couple of times recently as well. Like Tyron Woodley rocked him in both of their fights. Pettis finished him. Luke here, people forget this, in the first round, Luke here landed some pretty good shots on Wonderboy as well. And you can see Wonderboy mm-hmm. just sort of stagger a bit, think I need to get myself together again here. And Gilbert Burns has power himself. We saw what he did to Damian Meyer. We saw what he did to Kamara Usman. There's all the chance of Gilbert Burns landing that crude big overhand and maybe causing Wonderboy some problems early. Yeah, I'm not completely ruling it out, but I think that would be would be pretty shocking. Um as I mentioned, his his attacks are just too linear. You know, he doesn't have enough setup, enough, you know different angles that he comes in. He just comes in in kind of a straight line. And I just think it's going to be too easy for, for Wonderboy to avoid that. I really think the the grappling is the way that Burns needs to go. And if you look at Wonderboy's past five fights, 
Masvidal, Till, Pettis, Luke, Neil, none of those guys are grapplers. The last really grappling-heavy guy he fought was Woodley four-plus years ago. So the guy is untested in terms of takedown defense. It's not like we have a recent example like, oh, Wonder Boy stuffed all these takedowns from this wrestler. We haven't seen him in those wrestling situations lately. So we might see uh, Wonder Boy not look as good takedown defense-wise if he gets into those wrestling situations. But I really do think that he that Burns needs to grapple to win here. I don't think he can win the fight on the feet. But I'm not completely ruling out Burns. Um, but I am, you know, semi-confident in Wonder Boy. I think the odds for this one are correct with Wonder Boy around 63%. 63% for Wonder Boy. I'm going... I would go a little bit higher. I'm going to say, I'm going to say about seventy percent for Wonder Boy. Wow, nice, nice. Yeah, well, I've always been a big Wonder Boy fan, so I'm obviously going to be a little bit biased in that regard. Yeah, I like both guys here, but I, I, uh, I think I got to go with Wonder Boy. Uh, I think this matchup favors him. Right here we go, main event time. This is the one that everybody wants us to be talking about. The main reason that people are going to be tuning in for this pay per view. We are going back to the USC lightweight division. Dustin Poirier, the number one seed, will be taking on the number five seed, Conor McGregor. A uh, little bit of trivia for you. This is Conor's lowest ranking in the UFC since January of 2015. That was before he fought Dennis Seaver. Once he won that fight, he got bumped up to number three. So this is Conor's lowest ranking since then. So I'm going to ask you a bit of a question, John, to start off this thing. So picture the scenario. UFC 257. We're in Abu Dhabi. Dustin Poirier versus Conor McGregor 2. We've seen the first two rounds play out. Conor arguably winning the first round, but Dustin hammering those leg kicks over and over and over. Halfway through the second round, Dustin lands a big left hand, and you see Conor stagger up against the fence. What are you thinking at that moment? So I had two of my friends over watching the fight at the time. And sometimes when I'm watching fights, I, I check Discord servers and I get like some spoilers. Like if, if the knockdown happens, I had no spoilers for this one. So seeing Connor get rocked there, seeing him get knocked out, it was one of the most shocking moments I've ever seen watching MMA. I, I was celebrating going crazy afterwards. Some of my friends had bets on Connor, so they were kind of dead silent sitting there watching. But I was over the moon happy for Dustin Poirier there. It was, you know, truly one of the best moments I've ever seen watching MMA. And, you know, seeing him do it again won't have that same feeling, but it will, you know, give me some more satisfaction. Um, it was it was definitely shocking. You, you were staying up for this one to watch it live, right, Carl? Uh, back I, I, obviously, it's a BT Sport box office, so obviously I had to pay the 20 quid, and it took a lot out of me on the Sunday, I have to be honest, because I was just staying up all night to watch that one, but... It was worth it because it was one of those sort of big where were you moments. The fallout from that I found very interesting um, for two reasons. Number one was that when you see the big high profile fighter lose, they obviously get the focus of the attention. But I found it quite 50-50 from people questioning what went wrong with Conor and people praising Dustin. And that doesn't normally happen when these sort of fights take place. But also as well, I felt this was the first time that Connor's stock took Connor's stock, I should say, took a massive hit. Because like, yes, Connor has had losses before, but there's always been some sort of justification around it. So obviously he had the two losses when he was in Cage Warriors and on the regional scene. With Nate Diaz, he was jumping up two weight classes. And with Khabib, it's it's Khabib, it's understandable. This was the first time I really felt that Connor Connor's 
persona, Connor's presence in the UFC was really called into question. And I think regardless of what happens in this fight, I don't see him ever really getting that mystique back. Yeah, I agree with that. And you said 50-50, and I think I think it might have been more. I mean, the aura of Conor McGregor is wearing off. And we saw it after that fight. Not all of the, the attention was on him. It was much more celebration around Dustin Poirier. And that's because Dustin Poirier has been putting in the work. You know, he paid the cost to be the boss. He's been around for years beating elite level lightweights. And he finally, uh, all that work finally paid off beating the best or the biggest fighter in the sport. But I actually disagree with what you said about his stock not taking a hit. I think I think every loss in the UFC it has taken a hit. The two weight classes one. I mean, he was he was the champion, the featherweight champion. He fought Nate Diaz, who didn't have a training camp, and he was a minus four hundred favorite there. I mean, he he definitely made a lot of mistakes in the fight that led to the loss as well. And I think that loss took a hit for his stock. And then Khabib, you know, he was obviously so confident, so much trash talking. He didn't handle the loss well. He never really gave Khabib his full credit and just was he's kind of in denial, in my opinion. And the biggest question in this fight, I think, is do you trust Conor McGregor to make the correct adaptations to overcome the loss from the last time? And personally, I don't. I mean, I think the guy is well, I know the guy is. 12 or 13 years in his pro MMA career. It is hard to make those those drastic changes when you're at this stage of your career. He's also been training in Dubai a lot, not really training uh, in Dublin. And even if he was training in Dublin, I don't really trust the SBG gym that much. I don't trust his coaches. They're kind of yes men who kind of tell Connor what he wants to hear. And, you know, I think he's going to have to deal with a lot of things. He's going to have to uh, first is address the leg kicks. And, you know, the biggest difference between the two of them I see is the activity is that Dustin Poirier is so much more comfortable. He's used to the octagon. He's been in the wars and there is no way that Conor McGregor can catch up to him in that way. I mean, Dustin Poirier has put in hours and hours in the cage since Conor McGregor has only had a few fights and no matter all the training that Conor is going to do, he's never going to be able to, to get that comfortable as Dustin is in the cage. So I think um, well, I'll pose a question to you. How do you think that Conor McGregor is going to deal with the leg kicks in this fight? I think he's capable of doing it. I think if there is one thing I have to praise Conor for was something that we saw in the second Nate fight, which is that Conor, for all of his faults, maybe from a personal perspective, he does take on board some of the flaws in his game. So we saw with the Nate fight, he was... He, tr he tried to go for the finish a bit too quickly when he fought Nate the first time. He was throwing a bit too much flashy stuff, a bit of the capoeira. And when we saw him second time around, it was primarily boxing-based. He wasn't charging in. It was, it was a very intelligent performance in the way that he fought Nate Diaz second time around. So I think Conor is capable of making the adjustments. Um, and I think we will see him be a lot more wary of the leg kicks uh, than he was first time around. But I think if he does that, he also sets up Dustin Poirier, who I think the strides that Dustin has made in his striking, especially when you compare it to the first fight the two had, have been substantial. I was actually watching the, the two fights to try and sort of remind myself, obviously hype myself up, because it's people. a lot of people forget this. This is what, eight, nine minutes of action between two fights? So we don't really have too much details in regards to these two. But from the first fight, what I found interesting... Dustin tried utilizing that leg kicking game 
against Connor first time round. But Connor was able to land the big shots. Dustin's defense wasn't that great. And Dustin didn't have the durability to take the big shots and he did second time around. And second fight, a lot of people forget how well Connor did in that first round. He staggered Dustin. I think there was two big shots that Connor landed, which did have Dustin backing up a bit. So I think first round Connor is always going to be dangerous. And a lot of people can't forget that. Even though I favor Dustin to win this one, round one Connor is still going to be a very tough prospect to break. Yeah, and I'll try to counter some of those points if I can remember them all. The first one <laughs> is is the Connor Nate Diaz one. And I think I got I mean I gotta bring up that that is five years ago. That was when he was so much more active. Mm-hmm. And I that agree. was versus that was versus Nate Diaz, who is just a much more flawed fighter in nature than Dustin Poirier is. And he went into the first fight without the game plan. I mean, if you watch Rafael dos Anjos versus Nate Diaz, you realize that if you're a southpaw, you can absolutely butcher his legs with outside leg kicks. And Connor didn't do that the first fight. He didn't really think of doing that. He didn't he didn't game plan for that fight at all. And then obviously when he went in with an actual game plan, he did win. But by uh, a 48-47 decision as well, still struggling a lot throughout the fight. And... Let's see what the next point we can go with it was. <laughs> uh, so Connor in round one, I thought he he did land a few hard punches on Dustin, but I was shocked at how comfortable Dustin seemed eating those punches. And yes. I remember going into the first fight, I was still or the second fight, I was still picking Connor, but I was I said that I was pretty confident that he wasn't going to knock him out in round one because we've seen Poirier eat punches from Eddie Alvarez and Justin Gaethje and Dan Hooker and so many great uh, elite level lightweights, Max Holloway, and and he never really had gotten rocked or hurt by those guys very badly. So I didn't think Connor was going to come in off the uh, off you know the long layoff and just come out and knock him out in round one. Uh, I picked like I think Connor round two knockout is the official pick, so I got the outcome right, but just the wrong fighter. Um, so in this fight with the leg kicks, I think he either has to do two things: he either has to stay defensive with the leg kicks and try to check all the leg kicks and calf kicks that are coming at him, or go on the offensive throwing his own calf kicks uh, and his own outside leg kicks on Poirier. I think he would be better suited if he went defensive and tr- and focused on checking them. But I'm not exactly confident he's going to be doing that. Um, I'm not really sure. So if you had to lean one way with that, uh, Carl, would you say he's going to be defensive with leg kicks or try to be offensive? I can see, I can actually see a bit of both. I could see him maybe trying to be a lot more aggressive early on to try and negate that. Um, but if he starts feeling the kicks, if, if Dustin lands one or two kicks, Connor's going to go very defensive. And if he goes defensive, yep. then... I think that's a bad omen for him because I don't think that Connor does very well when he's up against the fence. I actually, Connor's movement has always been one of his strongest forties, but if he does get backed up against the fence, it's just basic sort of like side shuffle, moving your head sort of stuff. I don't think he's very good at dealing with that side of the game. One of the things which I have, sorry, one of the things which I have noticed, which is different this time around, Connor was very jovial in the build-up to the second fight. Now, whether that was overconfidence, your mileage varies. But there was a lot of sort of very chumminess with Dustin. He wanted to just, he was like, we were going to donate to each other's charities, all that sort of stuff. This time around, he's being a lot more, a lot more like the old Connor. He's trying to get in Dustin's head a little bit more. Would you say that's fair? 
I would, but I think it's, you know, pretty ineffective. I mean, the dude just knocked you out in front of 50 million people, and you really can't get in his head at this point. Um, with the, whole, he, with think, the whole grappling is for wusses and all that sort of stuff thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Connor is extremely pathetic saying all that <laughs> stuff, honestly. Um, and I think he's always had this kind of fake humbleness about him that he, you know, can take a loss really well. But, you know, deep down inside, he's still very resentful uh, anytime he, he loses. And I had one other counterpoint I wanted to bring up, but I'm, I'm kind of blanking on it right now. Um so yeah, the odds in this one we have Poirier slight favorite. It is pretty crazy. The first fight around McGregor was around minus three hundred, which is seventy five percent. Now he's the slight underdog at you know forty eight, forty seven percent. So we're seeing an almost twenty five percent shift in the odds here. It is interesting how severe of a shift there was in the odds. So do you said you slightly favored Dustin Poirier here? So you agree with him being the favorite here? Carl? I do agree with Dustin Poirier being the favorite. Now I actually picked Connor to win. Uh, at USC 257, but mm-hmm. I just don't think that Connor can make the required adjustments needed to get the better of Dustin Poirier. Like yeah. as much as much as I respect Charles Oliveira, Dustin Poirier for me is the number one lightweight in the world right now. For sure, yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of, I mean, I like Oliveira. It was nice to see him win the belt, but he he's not the best lightweight in the world right now, and. Let me think of oh yeah so my prediction for this one um again i i don't think the connor he's gonna have too many things to address and that the one is the calf kick and then the other was the the the, the check right hook of dustin poirier that was actually what really led to the demise of connor he got he threw an uppercut got off balance and and Poirier hit him with a counter right hook. He circled around the cage a little bit, and then he unleashed the the, the left hands that really started hurting Connor. But the leg kicks were giving him problems. The check left hook, Connor McGregor didn't have his typical movement. He was typically a lot lighter on his feet, moving in and out a lot more. He was much more stationary, um, not as bladed. He had more of a karate stance in the past, where he was kind of more diagonal, like you would uh, see Wonder Boy Thompson. He went a lot more, you know. Uh, centered and straightforward in this fight, a lot heavier on his legs. And that really was a huge detriment to him with those leg kicks because they hit him hard. So it's going to be interesting to see whether Connor has more of that, that in and out movement light on his feet, like he did early in his career, or is he going to stay with the heavy on heavy on his legs, the more boxing stance. And he really needs to go defensive with those leg kicks, because as you mentioned, if he gets a few of those leg kicks again, I think it can, it can go really badly for Connor. Uh, again in this fight so i'm kind of struggling on what the official outcome is going to be uh, i'll let you go first on how you think uh poirier wins this fight i am picking dustin poirier to win this one i'm going i think it's going to be a third round finish i don't think he's going to knock out connor but i can see a situation where dustin lands a couple of big shots connor's up against the fence and then you get herb dean or whoever's refereeing stepping in saying that's it it has been interesting to see the marketing of this fight, which I have been very fascinated by. The way it's almost been framed is this is Connor's last stand. It's almost as if the UFC is sort of preparing themselves for the realistic possibility of Connor losing. If Connor was to lose, what happens next? Does he go back to Hollywood with all of these bottles of whiskey and just ease off into retirement? Does he do the celebrity fight of Rude, Masvidal, a near trilogy? What happens to Connor if it goes the way that people believe it will and Dustin gets the win? 
Uh, I think he still has a lot of options, honestly, because he he is fighting the best lightweight in the world. He only has two fights in three years, essentially. One of those was with Cowboy Cerrone. They lasted 45 seconds. So the guy still does have a lot of options. The the Nate Diaz fight comes to mind. Or just giving him a a lower-level lightweight, you know, giving him Ally Quinta, giving him somebody that he can beat sort of easily. Here's Um, one for you. Conor McGregor versus Tony Ferguson. Yeah, I was think I was kind of had that in the back of my mind as well. Um, yeah, I mean Ferguson would be happy to do it. That'd be a pretty easy win for Conor McGregor um, because Ferguson is, is shot to bits. But I think that I think that he does still have options at, even if he loses this fight. And uh, I'm kind of leaning towards either a third or fourth round knockout or a decision victory for Dustin. I think the fight will last a little bit longer. Then the second fight did, and I agree with what you said about the the stoppage. I don't see Connor getting knocked out stiff like he did last time. I think I can see it being more of like a TKO, um, accumulated damage type of thing where Connor, you know, I don't know, takes a knee, falls against the cage, and uh, Herb waves it off or whoever the referee is. So I'm riding with Dustin Poirier in this one. He he shocked me the last fight, but he proved enough in that fight. He showed enough strengths, enough. Um, enough smart IQ the way he went for that takedown early to throw Connor off. He pushed him against the cage. He kind of wore Connor out a little bit and then methodically took him apart with the leg kicks, the right hook, and then the barrage at the end, you know, Dustin Poirier looked extremely sharp in that fight. And I think he's going to do what he did again. I don't trust Connor to make the necessary adaptations. So I'm going with Dustin. Let's go with, I'm going to go with the decision just to be, just to be a little different than you. Let's go with Dustin, uh, 49, 46 decision. It's going to be very fascinating stuff regardless of what happens because either we get sort of a line in the sand, Dustin Poirier is the better of the two fighters now, and then all the questions about Conor's future. If Conor McGregor ends up winning it, then it's almost certainly going to be fighting Charles Oliveira for the belt, possibly doing that sort of like the, the December show, maybe MSG, depending on how things open up. I know we have a lot of criticisms in regards to elements of this card, whether some fights deserve to be on the main card or Sean O'Malley's opponent, but it's look, it could well be a fascinating show. I think the core main is going to be very good, obviously in the main event, but all the questions that could come from that. I think the UFC, it's, it's a B-plus show for me. I think it's definitely one that's worth tuning in for. Yeah, I honestly might even go A-minus, honestly, because... Um... We did do a bit of critiquing early on, but I think we're still overall pretty satisfied with the card. I think that there are five good prelims. Um, I think that the co-main and main are both great fights, so I consider six or seven of these fights to be really interesting, and I think that's good. That's good enough to be, you know, a B plus, A minus card for sure. The only really gripes we have is the the structuring of the first three fights in the pay-per-view, but regardless of that, it's going to be a great card. You know, Conor McGregor fights are always uh, more fun, and of course, we got the full audience in Las Vegas, too. Is this the first Las Vegas card? I think first, it is, right? They did... Unless you, unless, you can't, unless you count those, like, special guests who were in there at the Apex for... No, I think 259. Nope. Nah, sorry, Nook boys, but no, they, they don't count for that one. Um, yeah, so first first time back in Vegas in, in an insane amount of time since the the Zhang uh, Wei Li fight back in March. 248, yeah. So it's yeah. Been, 
almost 18 months. So it'll be it'll be fun to see that back in, in Vegas. And of course, the fights in front of the uh, the fans are more fun. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I think the pay per views have been way more fun with the fans in attendance. Yes, I mean there's elements of the crowd which I don't like. Um, I was quite critical uh, at times for the crowd in Arizona, but I think on the whole, the positives outweigh the negatives. And especially we saw at 261 that everybody upped their game because they were performing in front of a crowd. And that was a great show, 261. So if we get something similar to that with 264, I think we're going to be very, very happy. And I think Connor, especially, in my opinion, he's going to perform better in front of a crowd than he did when he fought at Abu Dhabi. Yeah, well, there was a, a small crowd at Abu Dhabi for the first fight, but yeah, he'll definitely take take more from the audience, uh, I think, here. But uh, I don't think it'll be enough to overcome um, the, the the skill deficit. So I'll be cheering for Dustin Poirier here, hoping for him to win. Won't be you know upset if Connor pulls out the victory, but we're we're definitely team Dustin Poirier over here. And I'm glad we've had the opportunity to talk about the card. Thank you very much for joining us, John. Um, for anybody who wants to get in touch with you, because you're, you're going to be doing a full breakdown of the entire card. So you're going to be talking about Jessica Rye versus Jennifer Meyer. Talk about those big <laughs> superstar matchups we weren't able to. Where can they listen to you? So I'll be recording my podcast a little later in the week. Uh, typically, I release them on Fridays. And once again, you can find me on Twitter at UFO underscore UFC or just search Martian MMA on YouTube, SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. And you can find my podcast there. Thank you all for tuning in to the INC live show. Thank you to Carl for having me on again and hope you all enjoy the fights in this card next week. Certainly so. And I also want to wish everybody a very happy Independence Day. We're recording this on the Saturday for that reason. So this will be going out on the Sunday. So anybody who's tuning in from the US of A, uh, a big Independence Day here from the United Kingdom. Uh, John, I'm sure you're going to be doing something very nice to celebrate the day. Yeah, not, no, no real plans yet. But uh, yes, America did defeat your country, England, uh, <laughs> 300 years ago. We are the victors and uh, happy fourth to everyone listening as well. At least we have Bisping versus Rockhold. That's true. That was one big, big win for America. But Dan Henderson beat uh, Michael Bisping uh, between you and me, too. Tell you what, we will continue this debate off screen. For now, though, uh, it is time to end the show. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you very much, John. This is the INC. Thank you for watching. I'm off to get myself a curry. See you guys.